We are going to continue tonight in our uh, series on foundations of the faith. And so you can see the topics we have thus far uh, addressed. And tonight we'll begin to address this one, Israel. And I don't know how long we'll, we'll stay with the topic, just until um, I or you get tired of it, whichever comes first. We'll see. There are many aspects of the subject which I want to address. Uh, tonight, the one I'd like to most speak of is the land of Israel. We'll speak in subsequent weeks of the people of Israel and blessings on and upon and through and persecution and uh, the future uh, for uh, Israel and all, all of the rest. But for tonight, and I think, Lord willing, at least next Wednesday night as well, if you would permit me to speak about the land, that tiny parcel of land, which is less uh, uh, than in area than New Jersey, and yet the world's attention is once again directed to it. Even in our day, you know, um, we have Middle Eastern leaders who've been invited here to Annapolis to sit at table in order to try to come to terms. So this is a very relevant topic. Uh, you read about Israel in the Middle East in the news and listen on talk radio and lots of good sources of information, but I want for us to consult the best, and that is the book written by the God of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Israel. And so let me call your attention to the first book uh, and uh, of the Bible, Genesis. And let's take a look at Genesis chapter uh, 12, verse 1. And we'll put it up on the screen for you, uh, but you feel free to consult your translation. Follow along as you'd like. Uh, Genesis 12, 1. Now uh, the Lord said to Abram, you know, he'll become Abraham. Here he's Avram. He will become Avraham. Right now, he's just Avram. He's, he's Abram. He's not Jewish yet. <laughs> he, he's a Chaldean. There, there are no Jews yet. There are no Hebrews yet. It's a nation that had to be formed and constituted as such. It had no prior existence. In fact, I think just the inauguration of uh, this people group called Hebrews and their preservation down to this very day is, uh, is a miracle. I'll develop that uh, further in weeks to come. May 14th, 1948, the uh, foundation of the modern state of Israel is, is a miracle. I'm not calling any attention to the inherent worth and value uh, of Jewish people it's this God behind it all who is absolutely amazing. Here's a people group who've been out of their land for 2,500 years, 2,500 years of their 4,000-year existence, and yet still with a distinct identity. They know who they are, and they have core values, and they're still a distinct people group in the land today. It's really no small modern-day miracle. So at this point, you just have Abram, and God said to him, go forth from your country. It, it was not Israel. His country was Ur, you are, Ur of the Chaldeans. It was um, in Mesopotamia, 
meaning the land between the rivers. Would you like to guess as to what two rivers Mesopotamia is between? Tigris and Euphrates, which would put it in what modern-day country? Isn't it interesting how much has taken place in terms of biblical history in Iraq? Yes, Ur of the Chaldees was in Iraq. And that's how, by the way, Hebrews got to be called Hebrews from Ivrim or Ibiru, which means the people beyond the river, the people who crossed the river, uh, the first of which was this guy, who at this time was a Chaldean, immersed in Chaldean culture, quite sophisticated and advanced in many respects, and yet quite inundated by pagan idolatry. And so this was his background, and God calls to him and says, leave your country and relatives and your father's house to the land, somewhat to spiritualize the Bible too much. That is to say, speak out of existence its literal truthfulness. We're speaking of a land here. That's why I'm starting with the subject, not a concept. We're speaking of a a piece of geography, earth, that God has in mind, as you will see, for Abram. Leave your present land, says God, and go to a land, unnamed at this point, which I will show you. Abram is 75 years old at the time. Are you ready to move when you're 70? I mean, this was no small. I don't know how Abraham did it, how he yielded to God. Listen, this guy is immersed in a polytheistic culture, monotheism, that there be one God was foreign to the peoples of the day. Israel, who became monotheistic, didn't get monotheistic because her neighbors were. She got monotheistic because the one true God revealed himself to her. But at this time, Abram didn't know of the one true God until somehow he was able to believe. And so the one true God speaks to him. We have no record of him speaking before this to Abram. He does on this occasion and Abraham, I don't know how, musters enough faith to leave. Think about it. Roots, country, and family, and relatives, and all that which was familiar to him to go to a land he had never been to before. That's what God says. Go to another place. Well, there's a bit of a problem because the place to which God will lead Abram and the land which God said he will give to Abram, as you will see, is already inhabited. It's not undeveloped, empty land. There was a diverse assemblage of peoples living in the land already, and they're known as Canaanites. You know how you read in the Bible the Hittites, the Hevites, the Perizzites, and all these ites? They, they're all subsumed under the category of Canaanites because they lived in the land of Canaan. Now, I have much to say about this but I, in weeks to come, but I only want to say right now, it's the land of Canaan. At this point, it's not Israel. It's the land of Canaan. At this point, and at no point, it, is it the land of Palestine? I, I, I make an objective statement. 
Nowhere in the Bible is that name ever assigned to the land. It is called at this point the land of Canaan. I didn't make a political statement. I just made a biblical statement. It's never called the land of Palestine. Never, never. It is the land of Canaan. And Abram manages to trust the voice of this one true God and go there. So he leaves behind everything and goes to the land. And when he's in the land, I mean, it's about a 650-mile journey in those days, you know, pretty rough, with a bit of a stopping-off point in a place called Haran, you know. Then he finally enters the land, and we think we've located the very way he got into the land through the northernmost limit of ancient Israel, a city called Dan, ancient Dan. We think we've located, that is archaeologists, the very city gate built by the Canaanites and which Abram entered through when he came into the land. While there, this same God, this Yahweh, whose name Abram is quite unfamiliar with at this point, speaks to him again. And we have it recorded again in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. Now, I did not make yet a political statement, did I? Okay, there'll be plenty in weeks to come. I just got to tell you. But I just want you to see right now, I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying this God, this one true God said to Abraham, leave one place, go to another place, and I'm going to give that place to you and your descendants. It says that in your Bible, right? I mean, that's not like the Rothberg translation. You, you. I've got to tell you something. I find this to be rather gracious of God to take a guy who's a pagan guy. You know, uh, his whole family were idolaters worshiping a multiplicity of gods. And I don't know why he singled this guy out, Avram. It's not like the name is that hot, is it? Avram? I, I mean, what? I don't get the whole thing. Uh, and yet this is, this, is what, this is what happened. I think it's tremendously gracious of God. I don't see any inherent worth residing in this guy named, named Abram. Uh, and so, on the one hand, while I find this to be very gracious, quite a generous offer of God, it doesn't seem very fair to me. Does it seem unfair to you? I mean, there's people in the land. So God is saying to Abram, I, I'm giving you land inhabited by the Canaanites. It just doesn't seem very fair to me, so let me comment. Do you remember a million years ago when we were dealing with the subject of us? <laughs> and I mentioned we were discussing how did we get here? What, what is the beginning of us? We consulted the Bible and found out that God made us in his own image. Remember that? It doesn't say that about any other created thing, just us is created in the very image. This is a tremendous honor. Heavens to Betsy to have a mind so as to think on him and to have a heart so as to love him and to have a will so as to yield to him. Uh, other created things don't have those faculties, but God gave them to us, created in his own image. So what did man do with that very privileged position? Sinned right away. So we read about the fall of man in Genesis 3 and how that particular sin event came to characterize our very nature. 
In fact, it got to be so pervasive, human sin, all manner of crazy things were happening early on in human history so that a holy God intervened with a judgment called a flood. It was a flood judgment. But God preserved a remnant, Noah and his family, with whom he entered into a kind of a covenant called the Noahic Covenant. It's made with notes called the Noahic Covenant. So that after the flood, Noah and his family survived. You know that floating vessel thing? It didn't move. It just floated kind of a deal. It wasn't self-propelled. It was a big box. They came out of it, and God reiterated to them the very mandate he had given man prior to the flood in Genesis 1. Again, he said to Noah and those who survived the flood, be fruitful and multiply and spread through the earth. And you see that rainbow? That's a sign that I'll not destroy mankind in this fashion again. Spread out. Fill the earth. Take control. The environment is here for you, for your benefit. Subdue. Spread out. What does man do? They say, no. And they all get together and consult, and they start building a tower. The audacity and the design of the tower is to, by human effort, collective human effort, somehow to manage to make their way up into heaven. And the Bible said God had to look down even to see what was going on. So this is what man is doing. So in Genesis chapter 11, you read about post-flood man building the Tower of Babel, turning into confusion. And please tell me, what chapter comes after Genesis 11? Yeah, Genesis 12 should be in your Bible. So look at what's juxtaposed. You have the grotesque, organized, orchestrated, rebellious sin of mankind in Genesis 11. And in Genesis 12, you have God beginning a plan of salvation through a peculiar people. He's going to put in a peculiar place from who will come a Savior who suffered and died to offer redemption to the world. Genesis 12, that's what God did. You want to talk about fair? I'll tell you what would be fair. It would be fair for God to choose nobody and to obliterate everybody. Please don't ask God to be fair. Say, oh God, thank you for being merciful. So I'm just not going to argue with God about why he chose Abram, why he chose Abram's descendants, why he chose to give the land of the Canaanites to the, land, to the Hebrews. By the way, it, if you answer to the question, whose land is it? It's God's land. It's not the Jews' land. It's not the Arabs' land. It's God's land, and he could give it away to whom he chooses to. He doesn't have to give it to anybody. He chose to give it to Abram and his descendants. So we don't have a wrathful God who responds to us in kind. We have a merciful God. And so he chose uh, to begin a nation through, him he will, through whom he will affect a redemptive plan uh, through which the world could benefit. But why not work out this marvelous, glorious, noble plan of salvation through the Canaanites already in the land? Study the history of the Canaanites and you'll find out why. Degraded in immorality. 
horrible, horrible sexual sin. So enmeshed in pagan practices that you couldn't even extricate them from it. When we go to Israel, we could even see evidences of remaining pagan, uh, uh, pagan Canaanite sacrificial altars on which children are heated up in flames to the Canaanite god Molech. So God said, I'll extract one who believes me from Ur of the Chaldees, through whom I will manifest my glory and mercy and grace to the rest of the world. So that's what he chooses to do. Is it fair for God to have given the land of the Canaanites to Abram's descendants? Absolutely not. It's sheer mercy and grace. So then the Lord spoke to Abram again about this land in Genesis 13, verses 14 and 15. He said to Abram, now lift up your eyes. Remember, he's in the land now, the land of Canaan. Lift up your eyes. Look from the place where you are. Look northward and southward, eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you. And to your descendants, what's the next word? Yeah, okay, so forever is like in everybody's Bible, right? I didn't say this. That's what it says. Do you notice that this is all on God's initiative? Can you see the I will in the passage here? I will, this is God. I will give it to you and to your descendants. I will. This is all God's doing. Uh, Abram didn't invite it. His people are not better than anybody else. This is a God thing. God took the initiative. This is a manifestation of the will of God. You know what this is called? This is called a covenant initiated by God. This is a transaction, a contract, an arrangement, a partnership, a promise made by God as a function of his will. It wasn't drawn out of God because Abram was so attractive and because his descendants are so attractive. We're not. Look at us. That's not it. It's all about God. I will, says God. And so God initiates this promise, this arrangement, this covenant with Abram, and therefore we call it the Abrahamic covenant. Would you like to say that? It'll keep you awake. The Abrahamic Hammock. Yeah, I mean, it's a covenant God made with Abraham, and so we call it the Abrahamic covenant. We were introduced to it already in Genesis 12. It was amplified in Genesis 13. You can read about it again in Genesis 15, Genesis 17. It continues to be confirmed and ratified. And so I want to show you the covenant ratification ceremony. It's ratified. Whenever you close a deal, when you, it's a contract. You're closing on a house. There's like a deal. You show up. There's a bunch of pens, long table, a bunch of people. Everyone, you know, is getting a percentage of your money. And you're signing. You mean that's the ceremony. That kind of seals the deal. That's all this is. Contractual arrangement. Only they sealed the deal differently in those days. You'll see. Look, Genesis 15, verses 7 and 8. And he, that's God, said to him, Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. 
And he, now this is Abram, he said, oh, Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? That's not the question of doubt or unbelief. That's a, that's a, that, that, that's a person who's just saying, help me. Let me grow. I need some confirmation. So here's the response, Genesis 15, 9. So he, God, said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And in verse 10, then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. Kind of weird, but not for that day. This is how you ratified a covenant. In fact, it's called, when you make a covenant, it's called cutting a covenant. What does it mean? The parties who are uh, getting together in this covenant, two parties, you cut these animals and then both parties to the covenant walk through it. And you do it as if to say, may this happen to me or you if either of us violate the terms of the covenant. You get it? Cutting of the covenant. So God says, okay, I'll show you something. I'll ratify it. I'll confirm my promise to you. Get the animals. This was very common practice in the day. It wasn't unusual to be done. Abram would not have said, boy, this seems odd. God, he would have said, very cool deal. This is the way we sign on the dotted line. This will be confirmation that you're going to keep your word to me and me to you. So I'll get all the animals. These are the ones. And I'll cut them just as you say. We'll walk through the pieces and we'll take care of it. But then you get this in verse 17. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Whoa. We don't have Abram passing between the pieces at all. We have a smoking oven and a flaming torch. As part of the covenant ratification procedure involving two parties, God and Abram, you would expect both parties to pass through, but we do not have one of the parties, Abram, passing through. Instead, we have this unusual inflamed furnace. Who does that represent? Let's look at the next verse, Genesis 15, verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Those symbolized Almighty God, who was a consuming fire. God passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. From the river of Egypt, Nile River, probably not, different one, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Now, folks, this is interesting. You have two parties to this arrangement, partnership, contract, promise, covenant, but two parties did not pass through the pieces. Only one, Almighty God, in the form of a smoking oven and a flaming torch. Why did Abram not pass through? through the pieces. I'll tell you why. Because this covenant has nothing to do with the promise, reliability, or faithfulness of Abram or his descendants. This 
promise, the Abrahamic promise of land in perpetuity to Abram's descendants has nothing to do with Abram or his descendants. It has everything to do with the trustworthiness, faithfulness, and reliability of the God who made the promise to begin with. It's all about him. If God is worth his salt this land covenant will be fulfilled to Abram and his descendants in perpetuity in spite of what they do or do not do because they didn't even pass through the pieces. In fact, would you like to know what Abram was doing while all this was going on? Look back at Genesis 15 verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. That's what he's doing. He's sleeping, and as some of you are. <laughs> so it's biblical. It's biblical to sleep. He's not contributing. He's not promising. He's not singing. He's not serving. He's not ushering. He's not getting baptized. The guy is sleeping. While the greatest event of human history is going down, he's fast asleep. Why? Just to show us. He contributed zilch to the deal. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's all about Almighty God. So I make this statement. The Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant. There's nothing, it's not, its fulfillment is not contingent on anything or anybody because it was inaugurated, affirmed, and ratified by only one party, and that party happens to be Almighty God. I think he's worth his salt. I think what he says he will do. So the Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant. The covenant God made with Abraham and his descendants, the land, part of the covenant, the land and their title deed to it, down to this very day, in spite of them, notice, I'm not upholding Israel, I'm not lauding Israel, I'm just fascinated by Abram's God, who is so gracious and merciful that he would have chosen anybody, anybody, in order to affect his plan of redemption, and he happened to choose the Jews. Why he did, I don't know, you'll have to ask him someday, that's a mystery to me too, but he did. And so, so this land covenant has no conditions attached to it. I defy you to read the Abrahamic covenant again carefully in any translation you want. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3, please show me the conditions attached to its fulfillment. So a conditional covenant is different than this. A conditional covenant says, I will, if you will. But an unconditional covenant says, I will, period. That's why I say to you, this covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, is an unconditional covenant. You see the I wills of God in it, but not once does he look for a return, and I will, on Abram's part. It's an unconditional covenant. God made a few of those with Israel. But not all of his covenants with Abram's descendants are unconditional. He made one with Abram's descendants through his representative, Moses, called the Mosaic Covenant. 
So we've looked at three covenants already, haven't we? The Noahic covenant and the sign that God will adhere to his uh, no, no more flood uh, law is the rainbow, Noahic covenant. Then you got the Abrahamic covenant made with Abram and his descendants. But then there was the Mosaic covenant called because, uh, you know, Moses was Israel's representative. Uh, he gets called up onto the mountain, Mount Sinai. You, you know about all this. Israel had been a slave people for 400 plus years. How are they going to get anything done? You know, when you're a slave people, you start thinking like a slave. You're not a duly constituted, organized people yet. You have no direction. You have nothing. So God calls Moses up and essentially gives him the constitution to constitute Israel. It's called the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments and many, many statutes and so on. So Moses brings down the law of Moses. I mean, lots of stuff. So as to define a people whom God said, you're to be holy, he said to the descendants of Abram, because I am holy. Now, they have failed. I know this, but he hasn't. So that's the Mosaic covenant. And our, our rabbis and any of us, if we study hard enough, will find out in the law of Moses, the first five books, not 10 measly old commandments, but uh, uh, 613. There's just a lot in the law of Moses. And you know what? You, you know what God said to Moses? Moses, go down uh, and tell the people, here's the deal. I will bless you if you obey, but there will be cursing if you disobey. Moses, tell the people, if they adhere to these commandments, they will receive blessing, but if they violate them, they will be cursed. That's the Mosaic Covenant. And so blessing under the Mosaic Covenant is very much contingent on what the people do. The Mosaic Covenant is not God saying, I will, period. The Mosaic Covenant is God saying, I will bless if you will obey. Can you see the distinction thus far between the Abrahamic Covenant, unconditional, and the Mosaic Covenant? Look at this little graphic. The Abrahamic Land Covenant gave Israel unconditional title to the land. But the Mosaic Land Covenant said, you have unconditional title. It's yours in perpetuity. However, your enjoyment of the land is very much contingent on whether or not you live by my holy law. And the proof of this is that to this very day, Israel has not yet enjoyed the unobstructed full extent of the land. We read earlier on Genesis 15, I think it was 18, uh, that God said the land will extend from the river of Egypt all the way to the great river, the river Euphrates. You know what that mean? means? That means Israel's land entails uh, uh, bits of uh, pieces, uh, all or part of Saudi Arabia, of Jordan, of Lebanon, of Syria, and of Iraq. They've never had that, even under David or Solomon. Why? Well, they're proving God meant what he said in the Mosaic Covenant. The title deed is there, but the unchallenged enjoyment, possession of the full extent of the land has never been there. And this explains the problem in the Middle East today. 
God gave it to whom he chose to, and he gave it to Israel. And Israel has not yet been able to be in the land without being opposed. I do not blame that on Arab peoples. I don't blame it on anyone. I take responsibility as a representative of my own people. The most privileged people group on earth entrusted with the oracles of God. And we turned our backs on our own Messiah. And when we do that, we're subject to ravenous wolves. And that's what's happening in the Middle East and has been for centuries. So uh, this provides quite a parallel. Don't you think with our experience, those of us who are Christians? Could you please tell me what you did in order to get in on the new covenant? That's right, Zippo. You know what you came to God with? Empty hands and holes in your pockets. Your acceptance of God's inexpressible gift of forgiveness is not meritorious on your part. You don't get credit for accepting a gift. <laughs> the new covenant, it too is also unconditional. You didn't have to satisfy any conditions. You qualified by being needy, me too. You qualified by owing a holy God a debt you could never pay, me too. What did you do to be privy to the new covenant under which you are saved in perpetuity? Nothing. You didn't pass through the pieces. You weren't on the cross. Only one person was on the cross. This confirmed the terms of the new covenant. The cross was the new covenant ratification ceremony, and you weren't on it, and neither was I. The new covenant is unconditional. However, now that you're saved freely by God's grace and mercy under the new covenant, the enjoyment, the full enjoyment of the terms of your salvation, the full extent of expanding your spiritual sphere of influence in the land, growing God's kingdom, experiencing fullness of joy and peace and goodness and kindness and self-control and all those things which are the fruit of God's spirit in us, that's very much a function of our obedience. That's why the most miserable person on earth, I've said this before, but I believe it, is not an unsaved person. It's a new covenant person living in rebellion against God. You're miserable. You're choking. You're shriveling up and dying. You have title deed to your promised land. It's called heaven. And eternal life is to know the God of heaven now. And when you and I sin against him, he doesn't say that's it for you. You have abrogated the terms of the new covenant. Based on your breach, I withdraw my promise. What could you breach? You didn't promise to anything to begin with. You were sleeping in sin just like Abram was. What did you bring to the table of sacrifice? On which the Prince of Glory died. Emptiness! You're a beggar. God made you a son and a daughter and a forgiven one and cleansed you and put his spirit in you and reaffirmed a million times his promise that he'll never leave you or forsake you and all the rest. And 
when we sin, it only grieves the covenant maker because he knows, ah, now they open themselves up to tormentors just like Israel has. Now there are ones who want to devour what I put in them. Now they won't be able to live free in the land to which I have called them. Now they won't be able to reflect me to a lost and dying world because the fire is extinguished. So can you see the parallel? Abrahamic covenant, not contingent on anything but the faithfulness of God. Mosaic covenant, yes, enjoyment of the land is contingent on obedience. New covenant, not contingent on anything but the faithfulness of God. Enjoyment of new covenant blessing, very much contingent on the extent to which we comply with the strictures of a holy God as given to us in his holy word. So, folks, just as our disobedience does not nullify our salvation, so, too, Israel's disobedience under the Mosaic Covenant, there's been plenty of it down to this very day, but Israel's disobedience under the Mosaic Covenant does not nullify what God gave her under the Abrahamic Covenant. Can you see how important an understanding of the covenants are? If you understand the covenants, I think you'll be uh, in the right spot with regard to Israel's right to the land without, without lauding the merits of Israel. We don't have any. We don't have any inherent merits. So, folks, that God gave the land to Israel is absolutely undeniable. You read it in the same Bible I just did. That he gave the land, the land of Canaan, to Abram and his descendants is undeniable. But that he continues to maintain Israel's place in the land is very debatable today. And I can understand why Israel has rebelled. So we have many fine Christians who I hold in high esteem. I do not criticize them. Who say Israel has forfeited her right to the land because she is a stiff-necked people with an uncircumcised heart. They're right about that. But they miss the point. They didn't forfeit their title deed to the land because the title deed to the land was never contingent on Israel. Don't you see? Be very careful about thinking God has rejected Israel's right to the land. When is he going to reject your right to heaven? Are you better? You too are a privileged people. The church historically has had its ups and downs just as Israel had. Thank God the terms of the new covenant are based on the gracious character of Almighty God. I will send my only begotten son to suffer and die as your sin substitute. I will I shall. And we step up to the foot of the cross and say, thank you, God, for your inexpressible gift. Boom! And that sealed the deal. 
So the Old Testament parallel has tremendous repercussions for us. So if you think Israel has forfeited its right to the land, you probably doubt the continuation of your own salvation because you're misunderstanding the fact that the new covenant is also unconditional. So Israel's land rights have never hinged on what she does or does not do. It all hinges on the merciful, gracious character of God. So why do I support Israel's right to the land? It's easy because the land is God's to give and God chose to give it to her. And I just don't want to defy God, do you? So let me uh, tell you what my purpose is in the Israel series. Uh, I'll, I'll stake out my ground tonight, and then I'll repeat it often. It is not to get you to support Israel. Not at all. I'm not into that. It's to get you to support God's redemptive plan through Israel. Big difference. I don't want a bunch of people running around acting Jewish and stuff if you're not. Listen, my people don't need you to be so enamored with our talit and yarmulke. And you can spend all your life looking for the uh, ashes of the red heifer. Do what you want to do. That is not what I'm trying to get you to do. You know, some says, I just love the Jewish people. You do? I think they're largely obnoxious myself. I'm not into all of that. And I definitely do not want you to embrace Israel and reject Arab peoples. My cousins. Arab peoples are not anti-Semitic. They're Semites too. Our agenda is much different than taking sides. Our agenda is cooperating with God's redemptive plan, which he began to spell out quite clearly in Genesis chapter 12, so that all of us, Jew and Gentile and Arab, Muslim, whatever, who are so indebted to God could make our way into the new covenant on the same terms, his grace and mercy. Perish the thought that anything I say would turn you against Arab peoples. Perish the thought. Perish the thought that anything I say would harden you towards Muslim people. Perish the thought. Arab peoples are not my people's enemy. Muslim peoples are not our enemy. Satan is our enemy. If you want to hate someone, hate him. I know he uses people. He's used some of you too, hasn't he? Me too. Come on. Nobody's hands are clean. Come on. But if this Yeshua, if this grand descendant of King David, if he said, anyone who calls upon my name will be saved, how dare we set bounds? I don't want us to have an American political agenda that turns with animosity against any people group. I want us to have a Christian agenda as citizens of a kingdom which say there's room in the kingdom for everybody. There'll be Egyptians and Jordanians and Saudi Arabians and Iranians. I know of one or two here even tonight. And Jews and even a few Texans here and there. <laughs> in the throne room 
all together singing God's praises. I do have an agenda. It's not for you to support Israel and reject and turn against Arab peoples. No way. It's for you to support God's focused, redemptive plan through Israel. More of which, Lord willing, we'll talk about in weeks to come. For now, could I just say, may the God of Avraham and Yitzchak and Yaakov and their grand descendant, the Sar Shalom, the Prince of Peace, Jesus the Messiah, so fill us that we serve as emissaries of peace, the gospel of peace to Jews, to Arabs, to Muslims, to Hindus, to blacks, to whites, to old, to young. There is no hope apart from the gospel of peace. It's not the UN. It's not the next election in our country. It's not our army. The hope for the world is when people who are now at enmity with the creator of the world come to be at peace with him through the gospel of peace. Do you love Israel? If you do, make sure you're taking the gospel to those who presently oppose Israel. You can't change anybody, but when God inhabits somebody, there's great transformation. He can make a Jew hater a lover of Jews, and he can make an Arab hater a lover of Arabs. <clears throat> so um, here's what we'll do, Lord willing, next week. Uh, we'll talk more about the land, and I want to tell you some stories that I'm going to make up uh, <laughs> just to try to communicate some truth. And then in following weeks, I want to... Uh, I want to talk to you about the, uh, the bounds of the land and the, uh, how did Israel come to be and what's the Balfour Declaration and uh, what about this land for peace stuff and who are the Palestinian people and how did they get to be so needy and um, what about Jerusalem mentioned 700 times in your Bible? What about it as a... Uh, now proposed a divided capital, east and Jerusalem and west. What about all that kind of stuff? And this one, has God replaced Israel? Hmm. Many people think he has. Whole denominations have embraced replacement. What about this one? How does Israel get saved? I mean, do Jews really need Jesus to be saved? Can't they be saved under the Abrahamic covenant? Well, uh, Charlie says no, but John Hagee has a different point of view. <laughs> I must say I agree with Charlie and not John Hagee. You forgive me for being so blatant, but uh, I'm an obnoxious little Jew. What could I tell you? Um, uh, if you want to help my people, don't build orphanages for us. If you want to help my people, don't worry about getting us out of Russia. Get the gospel to my people in Russia. You get one of my unsaved people out of Russia and you bring that person to Israel, you, now you've got an unsaved Russian Jew who's an unsaved Israeli Jew. Be careful. You think you're helping, but you may not be helping. Uh, Hagee believes in the double covenant theory. I know he's popular. Everyone loves him. He's very effective. He's a great preacher and he has a night to honor Israel. 
We don't need friends. We need the gospel. You know what's a vile form of anti-Semitism? Withhold the gospel from Jews. Then you send us to an eternity apart from Almighty God. So it's nice to have parades and build orphanages and all the rest. But then if the rabbis tell you, but if you want to be friends with us, don't seek to convert our people, I would say, Rabbi, I don't want to be friends with you that much. So I'll say some things and uh, make you real, real uh, mad. But I'm telling you, it's good for your circulation. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's really good. It gets the blood. All righty. So let's stand together, and we'll take leave of one another. You know what would be good um, before we leave? Let's sing something. Anyone? Who has a song? Anyone got a song? You got it? You got it? Not the Yellow Rose of Texas. No, yeah. You got, you got, what, Betty, you got something? Amazing Grace, we know that. Let's sing that. Oh, come on. Look at this guy. Let me ask you a question. Do you sing also? Good, I'll hold this. I'll hold this. Amazing.